Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Paul Matsko. Our guest today is Julian Sanchez. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, where he studies technology, privacy, and civil liberties. And he's also a frequent guest on libertarianism.org's Pop and Lock podcast. Welcome back to the show, Julian. Thanks for having me. Lots of Americans don't trust the government or the national media to tell them the truth. And many of those adopt a do-your-own-research ethic, which you've been pretty critical of on grounds that it leads to believing a lot of misinformation. But just generally, what's wrong with the idea of doing your own research? So in principle, nothing. Um, as long as you, well, one, as long as you're doing legitimate research. I think I, I, I would just say, I, I hear a lot of people uh, talking about how proud they are that they do their own research. And what they mean is they watched a YouTube um, or, you know, read something on a website uh, and I guess they gathered information, but this is, I think, not what most of us recognize as, um, as doing research as people who do research uh, uh, kind of uh, full time. But also, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize what kind of research um, you are well positioned to do. I think the, the, what we've seen in the last, you know, few months, really the last year, um, that I think is, is somewhat more dangerous is where, uh, you have, you know, folks with, for example, very little technical background, um, trying to do research on, uh, you know, claims about voting machine hacking and election rigging, uh, and, you know, you'll find things like some of the affidavits that were, submitted in uh, the various lawsuits that Sidney Powell and others uh, attempted to bring that every technical person I talked to looked at. And I you know, I looked at it as well and said, well, this is absurd. Um, this is, I mean, this is incoherent and amateurish. And, and um, the, the claims that are being made here are not remotely supported by the evidence that's being adduced. This is, I mean, it was, it was a joke. Um, but for a non-technical person, um, that that might not be obvious, uh, and indeed, many people apparently did find it quite compelling. Um, in small, in part at least, because in the, in the case of the, the affidavit I'm thinking of, um, they claimed it had been submitted by a pseudonymous military intelligence expert. Um, turned out, this is someone who had you know washed out of a trainee program um, and was you know, basically an IT guy, but not any kind of intelligence specialist, um, as, as, you know, any technical person looking at the, that affidavit would have, um, would have, would have gleaned very quickly. Um, or on the other hand, looking at, uh, medical research, you know, looking at forums online, I see a lot of people, um, pointing to, um, academic research or documents that are really written for a, an audience of physicians and, and, and clinicians and lab technologists. And, um, and drawing conclusions from it that are not necessarily unreasonable from the text, but that, that, um, that sort of lack the context to make sense of what they're reading. And especially if you're sort of going in with a mindset of finding evidence for a position that you're already inclined to hold, um, you know, doing your own research, if you do it sort of halfway is a very easy way to, just convince yourself of your priors or convince yourself of, um, you know, whatever you were tempted to believe in, in the first instance. Um, and so sometimes that's because, um, you know, you can find an outlier 
study um, in you know, medicine, for example, um, that shows one result. But if you don't know the context of, you know, how credible is the journalist was published in, or is this just a preprint? So how much weight should this be given? Um, what's the context of the other research that's being done? Is this um, is this one study pointing in one direction when there are 50 pointing the other way? Um, but often, in some cases, you see claims that are made with some documentary evidence held up as proof um, where it's just a question of, of failing to actually read what the the document is saying. Um, so I'll give you an example here. Um, there was a claim that was making the rounds on, on social media that was promoted by folks like Mike Huck- Huckabee, a lot of you know prominent uh, uh, figures and, and, and pundits on the right, um, that the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, had uh, announced that it would be withdrawing its authorization for a, a particular COVID test called uh, uh, PCR, for polymerase chain reaction. And uh, the this document for CDC, again, with the audience of, of lab technicians and, and clinicians, um, said what instead you should be using now is uh, multiplex assays that can diagnose and differentiate COVID and flu. And the way this was interpreted by a lot of people, and I used to people to, you know, to this day still um, making this claim, was, aha, my gosh, the test that they've been using for COVID all along can't even tell the difference between COVID and the flu. All of these, you know, positive COVID tests, um, I bet they're really just flu and we've been, we've been conned. This is, uh, this has been, you know, blown totally out of proportion. Um, now that's not what the CD document was saying. What it was saying was, um, there are now what are called multiplex assays, uh, meaning tests that can, can look for, uh, multiple different uh, genetic signatures, multiple different pathogens. So instead of having a test that will only tell you, do you have COVID, yes or no, you have a test that will tell you, uh, do you have COVID? And also maybe you don't have COVID, but do you have the flu instead? Um, which is a very sensible thing, right? You want to, you, ideally, you would want to be able to have a test um, that you can take once and you don't have to wonder, you know, what you do have if you don't have COVID, that you can get a, a, a you know, an answer about what you do have. Um, the way it was written, because it wasn't written, you know, for a general audience, this was written for the use of, of physicians, um, was not necessarily obvious. Um, and so you have people looking at you know, this document on the CDC website and thinking, well, I've done my own research and, and yeah, it, it, it seems to confirm uh, the interpretation that was placed on this when I, you know, I found this link somewhere. Um, and, I, there's there's a kind of a dangerous bit of sleight of hand that happens because when you uh, you know you read something in the newspaper you're conscious that you are you know you're getting something through the lens of the reporter and they may have biases and you can try and adjust for those but what i i see happening in a lot of these cases is there's this sort of primary source document that is not written for a general audience someone links it or you know or forwards it along with an interpretation of what the document is saying, in this case, the false interpretation that the CDC was admitting the, the, the primary COVID test couldn't even tell the difference between COVID and flu. And then reading the document with that in mind, right, primed to, to think of that as the interpretation, they think they find confirmation in the document. Um, you could, I suppose, read, you could reasonably, um, right, 
misunderstand it in that way, especially if um, someone had just suggested it to you in advance. Um, but people feel like they've done their own research. They don't feel like this is a claim someone made where they're trusting a, 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 a contentious interpretation, um, but as though you know they've gone straight to the to the horse's mouth. Um, and in a way, you know, I, I think this is a, a process of kind of gamifying misinformation. Um, that is to say, engages sort of the pleasure that human beings take in connecting dots and finding things out and, and, and learning things and feeling like, um, you know, hey, I'm, I'm an independent thinker who's, who's educated myself by going straight to these primary documents. Um, and so one, it has the effect of, I think, obscuring the element of trust. Uh, right. In, you know, in general, right. We, we, there's an element of trust in, uh, in, in all the kind of information we take in. Um, right. We mostly are not doing experiments ourselves and are, uh, doing, you know, scientific original research ourselves. We're to some extent, uh, trusting in the credibility of the source of information. Um, and by sort of obscuring that, we, you know, it creates a sort of false sense that, you're not relying on trust because you've gone, you've gone to the original source. You've done your own research. Um, when in fact, you're, you're, what you're doing is trusting the interpretation of, of whoever sort of surfaced the document for you, um, in a way that is, right, just as, or, you know, more unreliable in this case than, um, you know, trusting the interpretation of, of, of a journalist who may have biases. Uh, but also, uh, you know, I think it creates a level of investment in the misinformation that makes it, much more incorrigible. Um, that is to say, if I, you know, read a news report and it turns out the facts in that report were right, I repeat the story and someone says, yeah, that report turned out it was false or it was, it was debunked. Ah, okay. You know, oops, I, I fell for a misleading report. Um, but you know, who, who can, who can blame me? Um, whereas if you've, as we say, d done your own research, um, You've, you've effectively been made complicit in misinforming yourself. All right. You feel like you've achieved something by, uh, kind of ferreting out this, uh, this information. Uh, and that makes it, I think, a lot more resistant to correction, which is why I think you find claims like, um, the one about the PCR test, uh, surviving sort of long after it was perfectly clear that, that, um, the interpretation that had been circulating was not true. I'll give you one, one other similar example, actually. Uh, I, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Candace Owens, the uh, uh, conservative pundit, um, circulated another, another document from CDC, which she claimed was a plan to put unvaccinated Americans in camps. I mean, like internment. Um, and I went and read the actual document. And it was, of course, not that at all. It was, um, it was, first of all, it was a year old. So she had sort of surfaced this thing that had been written during the Trump administration, um, and before there was a vaccine. And, uh, what it was discussing was in refugee camps that already exist. So this is a, right? You have refugees living in close quarters. So it was discussing proposals for, well, how do you protect the most vulnerable people within these you know, these, these crowded refugee camps, um, from, from contracting COVID. Um, and so it was discussing a proposal where, you know, the elderly and the immunocompromised would be separated within refugee camps from other refugees, um, to reduce the risk, uh, 
of contagion for the people who are at the highest risk of dying. It doesn't say anything about, you know, putting people into camps. Um, it's just obviously not, not what the document was about. But if you read it primed to think that that's what it's saying, well, it's just talking about camps. And, um, and again, it's, it is written for an audience, um, that is sort of presumed to understand the context of what the, what proposals the document's discussing. Um, so it sort of, it doesn't go out of its way to say, by the way, we're not talking about rounding people up to put them in camps. Um, it's, it's written for people who understand that this is, um, this is about refugee camps and other kinds of, um, you know, what it calls humanitarian context where you have people temporarily housed in close quarters. Um, I don't know if that one went quite as, uh, as far as, the, the false PCR claim, but it was a, a similar dynamic in both cases where, uh, you know, you would see people online, you know, one, you know, convinced by the interpretation that they'd been primed to come to the document with, but then second, um, just very resistant to entertaining the possibility that the, this was an incorrect interpretation because they had done the work themselves. And so it was no longer, um, well, you know, some other person has has misled you and um, here's the correct information, but you've misled yourself. And that is, I think, naturally a little bit more embarrassing uh, to sort of own up to. And so there's a fair amount of resistance to that. So it, you have these two interesting cases, right, where the, you know, one hand, the CDC, on the other hand, you know, the government agency talking about camps, they're producing documents um not meant for the general public, right? I, once upon a time, there would have been layers of gatekeepers between the CDC's, you know, pronunciation and medical associations, hospital authorities, et cetera, between the CDC and the public. So I, I guess I'm wondering, to what extent is this a story about uh, the internet exacerbating uh, kind of human, natural human instincts, uh, about disintermediation, the removal of gatekeepers? Like, how does the internet enhance this role? I mean, you know, in part, it's that it makes it feasible for people to do their own research um, in, in a way that, you know, previously would have probably, if you, it was possible at all, you know, would have required you to go to a library and go, you know, uh, laboriously uh, hunting through books. And in many cases, uh, you know, the kind of documents we're talking about might not be easily available through pre-internet to uh, sort of a, a, an ordinary citizen at all. I mean, it would be available in principle, but there might not be anywhere you could access it without a fair amount of trouble. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it, it, it accelerates, um, the speed with which sort of, uh, false claims can circulate. Um, right. This is none of these are claims that a, a decent newspaper would have run with. Although actually Fox ran a, a, a bizarre story about the PCR test where they didn't quite claim um, that, oh, this means the old tests couldn't tell the difference between flu and COVID. Um, but they certainly certainly left that impression. Um, it quoted it quoted sort of selectively from the CDC document. And then there was sort of a long section discussing how flu cases had um, declined precipitously in the past year. Um, while you know, people were on lockdown and masking and distancing. Uh, so the, so the, the way the article was structured, it didn't explicitly make the false claim. Um, but it also sort of included a bunch of information that makes no sense unless they are sort of expecting you to interpret it in that way. 
Um, so I, I'm not sure in that case whether it was a reporter um, who themselves didn't quite understand the the, the document that they looked at, um, or I, I, you know, I don't know, maybe sort of a cynical, um, you know, can we get away with something that's going to be clickbaity um, without technically saying anything, uh, you know, verifiably false? Um, but it's you know, it's not just a question of the internet. You do find um, real real publications or real news outlets sometimes um, running with this stuff, although usually that gets corrected relatively quickly. Um, so yeah, I think you know the the internet certainly accelerates a lot of this. Although um, you know, it's worth saying that um, there's been a fair amount of research on sort of modern misinformation, and uh, the internet I think has, has taken a lot of uh, flack um, for a problem that is really, you know, an issue with our larger media ecosystem. Um, a couple of years back, we did an event at Cato with uh, Yochai Bankler from uh, Harvard Law School, uh, who, uh, along with some other scholars from the, the Berkman Klein Center there, uh, had, had done a study called Network Propaganda, uh, where they found they looked at you know, some specific cases of misinformation and found that really... Um, you know, for the most part, it was things like cable news and talk radio that were as much a vector for this stuff spreading as, as social media. It's just that journalists are paying more attention to social media than, than you know, talk radio or other other channels of transmission. Um, so it gets a disproportionate amount of the blame. But to the extent we're talking specifically about the, the sort of do your own research gamification dynamic, um, that is, I think, very much a um, a function of the internet insofar as just um you know doing your own research was pretty labor intensive yeah um so it makes it right it makes it a lot easier to to feel as though um you've done your own research and to hunt down you know all sorts of of, of kind of primary documents fairly easily um that can then be you know bent to the narrative that, that um someone wants to peddle well there's that i mean the historian of me you know just automatically thinks of past dissemination networks, right? It's pre-digital. So maybe it's slower. Maybe the barrier uh, to entry, the act, the cost of access, the transaction costs are higher, but it's like, it's, you know, ideas about uh, Marie Antoinette spreading uh, pre-French revolution ideas about her being a traitor or being a spendthrift, et cetera, all of which would be classified as misinformation if we plugged that in today, more or less. Um, but, spread rapidly by word of mouth and by, well, pornography, by, you know, newsletters uh, that that were classified by pornography as the authorities. And like, so it still happened. It just was slower, longer. People were relying on firsthand accounts, or at least supposed primary sources about the queen's behavior, but it wasn't reliable. So, but I, I think there's something there. I do think though, that there is potentially a mechanism that's unique to the internet that isn't just the internet has has made information more accessible in a way that it didn't used to be or make the spread of information faster than it used to be and that's that the the internet enables community formation in a way that prior mechanisms of communication didn't and so one of the things that I've I think talked about on this show before is this the way that especially social media tricks us into thinking that subcultures are the dominant culture or tiny communities are bigger than they actually are because you pick and choose who you follow. And so, you know, if if you went based on my Twitter feed, you'd think that 
several years ago, 95% of the country was suddenly getting hired by Fusion because my Twitter feed was all, you know, journalists congratulating each other on their new job at Fusion. But that was a, a misperception based on the focused audience. And, and I think this also plays out in like the spread of language that sub communities adopt jargon terminology for referring to different things. And then because they think that their community is bigger than it really is and that everyone's aware of it because it's all they see on the internet. They assume everyone is aware of the proper use of that jargon and then get mad when people misuse it or have never heard of it. But in the context of this, I think one thing that that does as well is it allows for the rapid formation of new communities around mistakes that if you get this piece of information and you misinterpret it in the old world, you know, you could you could carry on your life with that misinterpretation and you might run across, you might tell someone else about it and they might accept it or not. Um, or you might run into someone who corrects you on it. But in the new world where there's uh, Facebook groups and various, you know, sub influencers on Twitter and whatnot, you can punch that misinterpretation into Google and you can find two or three other people who had the same misinterpretation. And now you found someone else who agrees with you. And then that forms the basis of a community. And then the community starts spinning out theories and subcultures based on this fundamental misinterpretation. And then it digs in and then kind of our identity becomes wrapped up in it and we give it a name. And suddenly you have these like huge Facebook groups dedicated to taking livestock dewormer or, you know, around the CDC, putting people in camps. And, and that community formation, I think is, is new. That didn't exist before that mistakes can turn into subcultures, can turn into cultures, can turn into personal identities. I think you, you remind me the the author, uh, the late author Robert Anton Wilson uh, coined uh, what he called the law the law of snark, um, not snark in the sense of you know uh, uh, acerbic uh, witticisms, but um, uh, derived from the Lewis Carroll poem "The Hunting of the Snark." Uh, which contains the line, uh, I have said it thrice, what I tell you three times is true. Uh, and the law of snark was essentially um, that, that the human heuristic is, if you've heard a claim three times, you, it's probably true, um, which is uh, somewhat, you know, kind of comical oversimplification. But I think it's it's very much the case that part of this dynamic is, um, you know, sensational claims become, uh, you know, much more easy to share quickly. Um, and one effect of that is that, you know, depending on your particular uh, information bubble or, or, or community, um, you may go online and see, you know, half a dozen people who you have some sort of social connection to and, and regard as trustworthy, um, sharing the same piece of information. And, you know, maybe this is all being, you know, essentially copied from one source that then, um, you know, maybe gets... Uh, you know, refashioned re and re repurposed and reappears in a couple different sites. Um, but it seems as though what you're seeing is a lot of independent confirmation of the claim um, to the point where it seems like common knowledge. Well, everyone knows that, you know, whatever it is. Um, uh, and, you know, surely it can't be that everyone is is wrong. Um, but if everyone is just sort of passing along something that they that crossed their their inbox, you know, very easily everyone could be wrong. It, it's kind of telling. I mean, to to think what both of you all are saying that 
how, um, you know, uh, Ryan Burgey, political scientist, uh, he's noted that evangelical evangelicalism positively correlates with opposition to vaccination. Now, sussing that out from the extent to which white evangelicals are more Republican and being Republican also positively correlates with COVID denialism is complicated. But I mean, it, it's that sense of you have this, not all these communities have to be formed on the fly. You have these pre-existing communities that can kind of be activated. And when they're activated, uh, especially if it's a religious community, think of how powerful uh, the effect of sacralizing that position is. So it's it's to, to Julian's point about the interactivity of this, this process, that the difference between sharing an article and actually making that your own point of view and like tying yourself to it, interacting with it. Well, then layer on top of that, you're the pastor of a church and you've said that from the pulpit, thus resting some kind of pastoral authority on that pronunciation. And there's a lot to lose from backing off that position, which is why I think you get all these stories um, just as much as you have stories of, you know, talk radio hosts who are on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd gotten the vax uh, of pastors doing the same. Like, I wish I'd taken this more seriously. Uh, but it takes nearly dying or dying to, to get that point across, to shake that that process free. So, I mean, it, it, it really is quite quite a sticky, a sticky belief once it's rooted in community uh, like that. Well, it, I guess my question then is, so how do you how do you address this? Right. Like right now. So we have a misinformation problem. I think that's true. Uh, I worry a little bit, but that the measures to fight misinformation, uh, there's all these big disinfo organizations sponsored by a who's who of like, I don't know, the Aspen Institute or you name it, who are creating, they're trying to create like a third party fact checkers They're And I sometimes worry that the attempted cure is worse than the disease. Uh, do you have thoughts about that, Julian? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not sure some of the, the sort of countermeasures are are ultimately that effective. I think, um, you know, when things that are regarded as, as misinformation get removed, um, you know, that is itself visible. That itself becomes sort of a point of contention, and so, um, you know, the reaction from a lot of folks is, well, you know, why are these big tech companies, for example, trying to um, suppress? The truth or at least suppress discussion um you know what what's what is uh what's wrong with with you know letting people uh, make up their own minds about this stuff and i think that's um a uh you know a, a, a fair response and you know I, I look i see the perspective of the uh the platforms when it comes in particular to health smith information because um you know here we're talking about uh, uh right the kind of misinformation that doesn't maybe just lead you to have a a, a false political or policy view, but um, that, that might indeed prove harmful or injurious to someone who believes it and, and you know, takes an untested medication or doesn't take precautions that are uh, that are, in fact, appropriate. Um, and so, you know, I don't blame them for saying, well, we don't want to be responsible for someone, uh, you know, getting killed or, or, or seriously injuring their health because they, uh, you know, we hosted something that, that told them to, to do something unwise. Um, at the same time, you know, it's obviously created a, a, a backlash where um, you know, folks feel as though this is an attempt to suppress discussion. And, you know, frankly, because the platforms themselves are not always, um, you know, expert at distinguishing um, misinformation from, you know, let's say legitimate, uh, uh, a legitimate minority 
position, um, right? I mean, there there are differences of, of of opinion among physicians about certain aspects of uh, of COVID. I think you know, the other issue we were talking about with the election stuff. I I think basically every um, sort of qualified information security person who's looked at this kind of agrees that those claims don't make any sense. But um, you know, there are genuine disagreements, uh, and you know, the experts. These sort of official experts have certainly not covered themselves in glory. I think, you know, one one reason you get some backlash here is people saying, well, look, you know, the CDC or Fauci or other uh, sort of official expert sources have, um, you know, either changed their consensus over time, which is how science works, or, uh, you know, been, been wrong or misleading about things where they expressed seeming certainty. Um, and so, uh, you know, why should we now assume that they, they don't make mistakes anymore uh, and that uh, we can trust them so much, not just that, you know, we, we give some weight to their to their current view, but that um, we assume they're so infallible that we suppress discussion of the alternatives. Um, so I think, you know, for some portion of the population, uh, you know, policies on platforms about removing misinformation may stop people from being exposed in the first instance. Uh, but for people who are already a little bit in, uh, inclined to this, it... it um, it feels like you know some kind of cover up, and may um, you know make them more inclined to seek it out. And it also, right? I mean, it also, it also, it also ensures right that the context in which that misinformation is now encountered is, um, in effect, right in in a community that is sort of all in on it, right? So if you imagine either of these kinds of misinformation showing up in a YouTube video, um, well, that at least is a place where. Um, probably there will be other people making responses to the video and saying, no, that's not true. If you look at, you know, uh, this document and I can cite other sources that, that, um, uh, that show why this is misleading. Um, whereas if you're saying, well, this isn't going to be on YouTube, um, you're going to have to go to, you know, a cue board or something to, to, uh, to find this kind of information. You're going to now encounter it in a context where there's no pushback. Um, and I'm not sure if that's any better. But what about a lot of this is it's not it's not that they get it wrong. It is like mistrust of these sources in the sense of lying. So much of this is is skepticism directed at the government and mainstream media sources. And we know that the government lies to us all the time and has a long history of doing so. And we know, like the New York Times say, they, you know, the arch enemy of um, of conservatives has a long history of lying on behalf of the government at the government's request, right? Or changing stories, of, hiding I, I, information. I of, 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 of. Uh, you know, suppressing stories, certainly. I mean, I know my, my kind of area of expertise, uh, is the national security surveillance, uh, and the, 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 the story by James Risen and Eric Lishblau back in 2005 that first, um, exposed sort of a piece of the NSA's warrantless wiretapping program is something that New York Times had been sitting on for, I think, the better part of a year and finally, um, you know, went to press with when uh, one of the reporters said, "Well, I'm going to put it in my book." If the sure, paper's not but I mean, to run going it. back, um, going back earlier, I, I, like, I do think I will say know, I think in in the modern era, at least, um, you know, mainstream journalists and newspapers being willing to 
not just sort of sit on a story, but actively lie for the government. I think that's that's fairly rare. But it's historically happened. Sure, and, sure. And so you can, I mean, I, I think part of part of a lot of this too is it feels like a lot of people don't really understand how journalists operate. And so thinking, you know, like what looks like mistakes gets turned into nefarious. But there is, there has been a history of, say, the U.S. press working on behalf of the government. Um, and, and so it seems like a level of skepticism, especially from things coming from actual members of the government, um, is warranted. And as libertarians, we frequently like, you know, don't like the government doesn't necessarily have your best interests in mind and all of that. And so how do we how do we thread that needle? Because you don't want just absolute credulity for any story coming from, you know, like you, you don't want to listen to the the president's press secretary and just say everything she told me is correct. Um, but on the other end, you don't want to run down into the queue message boards. But it seems like it's hard to it's hard to thread that needle because threading that needle demands a level of expertise in knowing whether the information you're hearing is good or not. Yeah, no, I mean, that's right. Uh, I think, you know, the the, uh, the the solution there is, in a sense, being sort of brutally honest with yourself about which categories of information you are well-equipped to directly assess. Um, and, um, you know, there's just no shame in, in, in saying, uh, you know, I'm not a physician. And, um, if I try to read a, uh, a, a technical medical paper published in the, in, in JAMA or some other medical journal written for physicians, um, the odds are I will not well understand what I have read, or at least there's a, a significant risk that I will believe of, I, I've, I've understood what I'm reading, but, um, but will lack the necessary background and context to interpret it correctly. Um, and then there are other topics where indeed I have the background and, and, and am perfectly capable of, uh, of, of doing my own research. And then, you know, once you've sort of done that triage, um, saying, all right, well, you know, some measure of trust is going to be involved here. Um, and I think, you know, part of the danger is people, um, sort of are skeptical in one direction. They say, well, sometimes, the government lies. Sometimes the New York Times gets things wrong. Um, sometimes the CDC is, uh, is is confused or or misleading about things, or you know acts as though they have greater certainty um, about something than they do because they want the public to uh, to act on on their advice. Um, and therefore, I'm going to look for other sources. And then the sort of the same level of skepticism is not. Uh, is, is not applied, even though, you know, in many cases, well, you know, you don't have to say that CDC is totally trustworthy to say, well, but I don't have any more reason to believe Mike Huckabee um, than I do the CDC or, you know, whatever the other, uh, the other source is. Um, so I think a mistake that's sometimes made is, uh, you know, I know skepticism is warranted about this source, um, but then to the same, the same level is not applied um, to the alternatives. Often because maybe the alternatives don't have the same kind of track record. So if you're you know looking at a source um, that has not been around for very long, maybe they haven't had time um, to to have made it clear that they occasionally also get things wrong. Um, so I think that's one uh, issue. But you know then so the question is, look, at some level, right? Trust is 
part of this that we, we should not fool ourselves that, um, you know, any of us are really capable of, um, you know, researching everything and you know, every possible domain of topics under the sun, um, with, you know, sufficient quality, um, to, to form our, our own opinion, you know, full, full born from the, from the head of Zeus, like Athena, um, without at some level relying on trusting the interpretation of someone else with, um, more domain knowledge than we might have. Uh, and so then the question is, okay, well then, you know, how do I assess, um, which alternative sources are suitably credible? Um, and so if the process is, you know, this is what I think is likely to be true. And so anyone with an MD behind their name, who's saying, um, the thing I suspect might be true, um, is, is credible. That's, I think a backwards process. Um, you want to try and say, okay, well, if I don't just trust the CDC, um, what are other voices that seem um, like they would be worth paying attention to? Uh, uh, and, you know, it's just going to pick them in advance, uh, in a sense, um, and say, okay, these are going to be the alternative sources that, that I have some reason uh, to, give, to give weight to, um, as opposed to the sort of process where, I mean, it just sort of seems like you know the approach is more along the lines of, um, you know, is this a claim that I'm inclined to accept? Uh, and then, you know, is there someone vaguely credible standing behind it? Um, uh, uh, but really, the credibility is sort of coming from from my enthusiasm to accept the conclusion. It, it does feel like we've been whiplashing throughout the pandemic between a kind of naive, progressive faith in government that, and which has led us astray. I don't know if I've been whiplashing that way, but well, I mean, but earlier on there was this sense of well, the CDC says it's fomite transmission. There was a reluctance to acknowledge that masking could help until like yeah, April, May. So there was a big early failure. Uh, with the CDC guidelines, but it's a, a whiplash between, I mean, or maybe not a whiplash is the right word, a, a, a war between kind of naive progressive faith in government institutions. And there was the kind of vulgar libertarianism, which is to decide whether or not something is true. I, I guess I'll have mood affiliation or confirmation bias simply because a government agency recommends something, it must be untrustworthy or wrong, leading to degrees of, you know, COVID denialism. Um, and it, I, I don't know. I, I guess I feel t- tugged between these two very loud, um, obnoxious reactions. Um, while being aware that like that's, I've fallen prey to that too. Uh, uh, is there anything during the pandemic, like looking back mistakes you made, I, I can think of some I made along the way, my views evolved on things. Uh, are there any mistakes that you made that you then with new information change your point of view and how did you like tweak your heuristic? how did you tweak um, the way you thought about the pandemic or your information gathering process or, or the like? Well, I mean, so, you know, the, the, the example you mentioned, certainly there were cases where the, um, you know, the CDC said uh, you know, some of the things you mentioned about math, for example, and fomite transmission and having no particular reason to think that was likely to be false. I, well, all right. I, I accept that that's the, the current consensus. Um, and then, you know, over time as the, as the position evolved on that, I, I, uh, probably, okay, probably the original, uh, the original analysis had been wrong, but that's just, I think to some extent to be expected in the, in the, in the context of a, a kind of novel, uh, pathogen that, that, 
uh, people are are still learning about. Um, you know, one thing people point to sometimes is the um, original sort of dismissal of the lab leak hypothesis as a as a, a potential origin for COVID, um, which I think is still largely considered sort of the less likely alternative. But um, I think there's there's sort of a consensus now that uh, it, it was maybe ruled out sort of more forcefully than um, than sort of the evidence merited that it remains a live possibility, even if not the the most likely uh, alternative. And although I think you know, part of the, the sort of backlash problem we see is um, I, I think a lot of, I see a lot of people who seem to think that the the sort of backpedaling on whether that was sort of impossible uh, means now that it, now it's been proven, which is also not the case. Uh, so, you know, one, one, you know, heuristic tweak, I suppose, is just the, the kind of the, a consciousness that you know, findings are tentative and, um, you know, you should assume that all, all of these, uh, conclusions are revisable. But also, you know, I think looking at that particular example, I think part of what happened there, part of the reason, um, there was this kind of overcorrection in favor of saying, no, this is, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, out in la la land sort of theory of, of, of where COVID might have come from is the sort of reasonable, version of this hypothesis, which is, all right, you know, there's work being done at the lab in Wuhan, and it's conceivable that um, a, a strain that had been modified might have escaped from the lab, um, was being conflated with um, right a much more sort of conspiratorial version, which is this is a Chinese bioweapon that has been released as a kind some kind of attack, um, which I don't think made a lot of sense. You usually don't release bioweapons on your own population um so it's, it's hard to sort of imagine what the what the, the motive there could be maybe they were expecting a you know huge demand in the market for n95s that they could profit I, you know i don't know what story you're going to tell where that makes sense um but the, the the rejection of the um right the sort of the conspiracy version um bled over into in a sense kind of debunking or rejecting everything in that in that sort of ballpark, even though there was a version of it that was a, 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 a reasonable hypothesis. We began this conversation talking about the potential problems that arise when people do their own research, when basically they're, you know, if they're not qualified expertise wise to do that well. Um, and I wonder, so we are all three scholars of the Cato Institute which is a libertarian organization, which is a edges of the Overton window political theory within Washington. Like there's most of Washington disagrees with us on most of the stuff that we say. And so we are essentially three researchers whose job is to say that the consensus or majority views are often mistaken. And we do that by doing our own research. And so I wonder if this is, is this basically just elitism? Like, are we, you know, is it, is it essentially saying like critical thinking is good for us? We can do it. But the rest of you, you know, probably shouldn't bother, which doesn't sound like, I mean, it's, it's not convincing. It's kind of insulting. And yeah, it sounds elitist. Is that, is there a way to make this argument or is this argument not just like research credential elitism? 
I, you know, I don't think so because I, I, you know, I apply this fully to myself, right? There is a narrow domain of topics where, um, I would say I'm, I'm an expert that I'm, I'm, you know, capable of looking at a new opinion from the FISA court and having a, a decent understanding of what's going on there and what the, um, what the sort of legal and technological and operational context for that is. Um, but, you know, I also routinely have the experience or, you know, used to, used to when everyone was, uh, in the office more regularly of, you know, discussing a, a, a topic outside my wheelhouse with a colleague who was expert in that area. And, you know, thinking I understood reasonably well from some sort of superficial reading I'd, I'd done and, um, realizing, you know, after about 15 minutes of conversation with, uh, with someone who really knew it well that, um, I, I was missing a whole lot that I, I lacked a lot of context. Um, and, um, you know, I had sort of fallen prey to the, the, um, the danger of a little knowledge. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I think, right. No one really is an expert to, to core, right. Every, no one is an expert across the board. Most people are, you know, expert in, in something and not expert in, in everything else. Um, so it's, 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 this is not, you know, me, certainly it's not me saying, oh, it's a bad thing to do your own research. That's certainly, you know, uh, it would be awfully hypocritical for me to say that. Um, uh, but, but rather um, that, and it's, again, advice I give to myself, um, it, is, it is very tempting to kind of regard yourself as omnicompetent um, as opposed to, uh, you know, recognizing when something is is sufficiently technical topic that um, you you should be looking for guidance rather than you know assuming you can you, know, you can sort of diffuse the bomb yourself. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.